Welcome to another episode of Left Coast Sports with John Schaefer. Before we get going today, taking a look at the upcoming Frisco Bowl matchup between San Diego State and UTSA, we'd like to thank Prospect Home Finance for their commitment to the community. As part of that commitment, Prospect Home Finance is making possible some local sports coverage on your view, starting off with girls' high school basketball, December 16th when Mission Hills takes on La Jolla Country Day. Should be a really good game. Prospect Home Finance, fast, friendly, affordable. Today we're going to catch up with Greg Luca. He's the beat writer for UTSA for the Express News. San Diego State meets UTSA in the Frisco Bowl. It's Tuesday, December 21st at 4.30. It's one of the more intriguing matchups of the bowl season and features two of the best teams in Group of Five football. It's also a game that pits UTSA's impressive offense against San Diego State's elite defense. But as always, before we get started with today's episode, please give us an auto-download on your podcast platform. That means you'll get future episodes automatically. Left Coast Sports is on most podcast platforms. We're talking Apple Podcasts, the free iHeartRadio app, YouTube, Spotify, and others. You can leave a review as well. And while you're here and listening, if you wouldn't mind switching over to Twitter and following me there, at John Schaefer, that's J-O-N-S-C-H-A-E-F-F-E-R, at John Schaefer. So if you're an Aztecs football fan, I think you'll enjoy learning more about San Diego State's opponent in the Frisco Bowl. Here's my conversation with Greg Luca about UTSA's remarkable 12-1 season and Conference USA Championship. So Greg, from your perspective, how's Jeff Trailer been able to do this so quickly? Because this program is still in its infancy, so to speak. It's been around for a decade or so, but these last two years have been a pretty remarkable run, especially what he's done here in 2021. Yeah, it's pretty crazy to see how quickly he's been able to pull this together because when he was hired, there was not a ton of excitement around his name. There was a lot of reporting out there that maybe he was the school's third or fourth choice and just kind of rumors and things to that nature. And so when he came in, there was a little bit of doubt because his basic background is mostly as a Texas high school football coach at Gilmer, where he won three state titles in 15 years. And he spent some time as an assistant at UT and at Arkansas and at SMU, but not like in a coordinator role or anything major. So there was a lot of questions about how his experience would translate to this level. And from the opening press conference, he won everybody over just with his energy and his enthusiasm and the players all seemingly bought into his culture, which is like not a thing that I really thought would happen this successfully at the college level. It feels like more of a high school style of approach, but he talks just about all these different pillars that he has, and they have this triangle of toughness that they've really bought into. And I think that's the reason that they just seem to consistently show up and play hard every week, which as cliche as that is, it's not true of every team in the country. And they just managed to, to play to the highest level that they're capable of, with the exception of one game in the last regular season game this year against North Texas. They just show up every week and they're consistent. And that's what's led to the success that they've had. I feel like it would be an extra level of challenge or more challenging, I guess would be the better way to put it, having to take over in the midst of the pandemic to be a first year head coach and have your first year be 2020, you would think would make it more challenging. And last year, I want to say, correct me if I'm wrong, they got off to an okay start, but they really turned it on in the second half. And from that point on, they've been one of the best teams in the country. Yeah, they won the last three or four games of the regular season and really seemed like they had figured some things out and got it rolling because to your point, to install new systems. I mean, you know, on offense, he has, he's more of an offensive guy and does a lot of his coaching on that side. And that's a whole new kind of a spread. There's some, you know, RPO elements to it and a lot of stuff you see in a lot of other places, but it was just different from what they'd have been doing here. And on defense, it was a huge overhaul because they switched to an odd man front from playing four down previously. So there was a lot of different things that had to get installed and learned. And you, the, you know, everybody understands how difficult it was in the fall, but 
people forget that there was no spring practice either because of the pandemic. And so that time is when a lot of that stuff, that foundation would have been set. So they're doing it through Zoom and trying to get what they can and some of these, you know, distance walkthroughs that they were able to put together. And so it really, I think, took some time to take hold. And that's probably why you saw at the end of last year and through this year that they've been able to expand the playbook a little bit more. There's probably a wider range of things that they're comfortable with and that they've been able to do it just more consistently as well. What do fans think of the historic deal that Jeff Trailer signed and what does it mean for him long-term? It's easy to say, Hey, he signed a 10 year deal. UTSA is committed to the program with the dollar figure attached to it. But also you would think that every time there's a big 12 opening in the state of Texas, his name is going to be attached to it. So does the 10 year commitment mean that Jeff Trailer wants to be at UTSA long-term or not in your opinion? Yeah, I think it really does speak to that because you know, certainly all signs indicate that there was a concrete Texas Tech offer on the table that would have been more lucrative than the deal that he signed here if he wanted to take it. And I think he's talked about for a long time just that San Antonio felt like a place that he wanted to be, even when he was just kind of dreaming of being a college head coach. And that he sees whether it's the, the area, the community, the level of talent that's around here, the way some people have kind of bought into the program, or even just these group of players, that this is a place that he wants to be and kind of set a foundation. And, you know, we, we talked about he was a coach at a high school program for 15 years. Mm-hmm. When you have the level of success he had, there were opportunities for him to move up and potentially start on this path to reaching a higher level. But he was the kind of guy who just believed in setting a foundation somewhere and building from the ground up. And so when that contract news came through, It was obviously a huge sigh of relief, largely from the perspective of in that moment that the team was 8-0 and everybody wanted to see what this season would eventually amount to. And if you pull him out of the mix right in the middle of that, it just kind of undermines everything. So from the short term, it was a huge sigh of relief. And in the long term, I think it is as well, because there's a buyout in there. It starts at $7.5 and then it goes down annually. But that's basically to the point where I think the idea is the only way that he would be able to jump ship in the immediate future would be as if it was like a UT or a Texas A&M. And, you know, those schools aren't looking at him at this point anyway, to be honest with you. I think they would probably be able to aim for a little bit more accomplished coach if they had to, if they were in the business of making a move, which probably isn't in the immediate future anyway. So mm-hmm. it does seem like Trailer's foundation is here because that Texas Tech and TCU would have been the ones that he would jump to if, if he was going to. And it's not it's not that way. So I think that the fans are excited about it. It's a crazy commitment from the program because it was not too long ago that giving Frank Wilson, the previous coach a raise to get him to a million a year felt like a massive commitment for the program. And now this is going to average 2.8 million over the next 10 years. And it speaks to with the move to the AAC, which is going to be coming up in the next couple of years and the steadily increasing budgets, just the level of commitment that the university as a whole is making to athletics and that's really exciting for fans too so both short-term and long-term it's like a huge thing that people are really rallying behind and getting excited about with this program in the future how has san antonio received utsa's rise to fbs football and you know has the support it's obviously grown with the success of the program but what was it like in its infancy and how much has it grown over the last decade yeah, it's very funny you asked that because with the conference championship that they won last week, we took a took an opportunity to kind of look back at the program's history for a special section we're doing. So I was just kind of getting brushed up on a lot of this stuff. And the first game here still stands as the attendance record for the program. They had 56,000 people mm-hmm. on the Apollo Dome. So right off the bat, there was this huge level of excitement to have FBS football in San Antonio. And 
certainly the novelty of it was critical at first, but what also plays in is how badly the city has wanted an NFL team and the fact that that's not going to happen. So this is the next best thing that you can rally around. So that initial game drew that huge crowd and they averaged over 30,000 attendance the first year, but then as the success wasn't there, it kind of steadily declined. And Larry Coker was the perfect first man for the job because that's a name that people recognize and get people excited about the program and led to some of that. But you know, then that excitement kind of wears off and it comes down to what you're producing on the field. Frank Wilson comes in from LSU and does a lot in recruiting, but doesn't have the results on the field either. And so you see attendance continue to decline and continue to decline. And in 2019, I remember doing a story about, you know, here's what the state of affairs is with UTSA's attendance is that it's declined year over year for the last few years. And they're bringing in record low crowds for some of these games because the team was struggling. They went three and nine in 2018 and four and eight in 2019. And then, you know, they get rid of Frank Wilson and a trailer comes in and starts to spark some excitement. But like you mentioned, immediately it's a COVID year, right? So mm-hmm. attendance is still super low and that's not even worth comparing. But then this year we've seen it went from like 15,000 the first two games to 20 to 25 to 30. And I think for UAB, they had something like 34. And then uh, the conference championship game, like I mentioned, was 41, which is the third largest crowd in, in program history. So that excitement is certainly building. And it's crazy. You mentioned like the community in San Antonio itself, because Conference USA title game procedures are different from a typical UTSA home game, students were going to be charged for tickets, whereas for regular UTSA home games, it's free. So the community, community leaders, program supporters, whoever put together this crowdfunding effort, and they raised $100,000 to pay for student tickets to the conference championship game. So I think that shows you the level of buy-in from the students that there was that much demand, and then from the surrounding community to be able to make that happen for them. Yeah, there's some similarities to San Diego and San Antonio. Of course, San Diego had the NFL for the better part of a half century, but has lost it. And San Diego State has maybe elevated its profile as a result. And then UTSA really filling a void in San Antonio. Both San Diego and San Antonio are probably two of the 10 largest cities in the country. Um, You know, getting to this matchup, this bowl game, this Frisco Bowl, San Diego State, UTSA, I think from the outside, people would say it's a pretty appealing group of five matchup, the combined records of these teams is 23 and three. So what's been the reaction of supporters of UTSA to playing in the Frisco Bowl and getting an opponent like San Diego State, which had a good year, but lost the Mountain West title game? Yeah, it's two very different questions, actually. I think they're excited to face San Diego State and especially to be able to face a ranked opponent in the last game of the season. And I think everybody looked at what happened in the Mountain West Championship game. And I think we're finding out because, you know, we're not plugged into that on a day-to-day basis about maybe some of the COVID issues or whatever it was that could have led to some of those struggles and doesn't really indicate how strong of a team this was. Now, the second half is the, did they want to be in the Frisco Bowl? And absolutely not. I think that, that was met with a lot of backlash right away because when they went seven and five last year, I guess it was a seven and four regular season. They got selected to the Frisco Bowl to play SMU. And that game never happened because of COVID protocols. UTSA ended up losing the first responder bowl to Louisiana. But to see that you come back and you go 12 and one and you win the first conference championship ever in program history and you get slotted into the same bowl, I think upset a lot of people because they thought they would be either in the Independence Bowl against BYU or the New Orleans Bowl against Louisiana. And not that those are too much different in terms of the quality of opponent or the profile of the school, but it's the the place you're playing and the venue you're in and the spotlight. I mean, this game is going to be Frisco Bowl is a Tuesday night on ESPN. And I believe it Independence Bowl and New Orleans Bowl are both Saturday. And one of them's on ABC. I forget which one. So you get a bigger spotlight if you end up in one of those games and you get to fill the, the uh, independent stadium in Shreveport, which is like 50,000 and the Superdome, everybody knows the Superdome compared to 
where the Frisco Bowl is at this 17,000 seat soccer stadium. So I think the fans will still travel and will still probably sell out that venue just because of the level of excitement around this team and the amount of time that they have between now and the game to get people rallied. But certainly the initial reaction was not great. And it was interesting to, to learn in the days that followed that it all stemmed from this agreement between Conference USA and ESPN events that allows ESPN to take the first pick from the league and put them in an ESPN events bowl, which the Frisco Bowl is, and then Independence and New Orleans Bowls are not. So that's kind of how we got where we are. It's, it's interesting when you say that, because again, yeah, from the fans' perspective, it makes sense. It does make sense. But then you think about this matchup and whether it was a you know, BYU or a Louisiana or a San Diego State, I think they all would have their appeal. This will be an interesting offense between UTSA's uh, really outstanding offense, right? Frank Harris, what he's done. Uh, McCormick, the tailback, has run for 1,500 yards. And San Diego State, which outside of the Mountain West title game, had been one of the best defensive units in the country here in 2021. So what has allowed UTSA to have this type of offensive success this year? And that they seem to be as balanced as really any team in the country. Yeah, you mentioned some of the critical guys there. Sincere McCormick was the Conference USA Offensive Player of the Year that got announced this week, and he was he won the same award last year. He's just very steady on the ground, and there were times this year where he didn't look as explosive or as decisive as previous seasons, but in the last couple of weeks, we've seen him really revert to previous form, if not better than he's ever been. And I think it's interesting to, to consider the way defenses are approaching him. Obviously, when he wins Conference Player of the Year last year, there's going to be a little bit more emphasis on, on taking him out of the offense or minimizing his impact wherever you can. So probably some of the stuff that feels like maybe he's not playing as well as more just how he's being defended and the opportunities that are available for him. And I think the biggest difference from last year to this year that has allowed the team to take these huge steps forward is, is with the quarterback, Frank Harris. And he's a dual threat, and he's going to run the ball some, but his passing – has so vastly improved over last year. It's it's crazy to think that it's the same guy. There's always been questions about his accuracy or his arm strength and whether he was like a traditional quarterback capable of making a lot of these pro-style throws, these these 15-yard out routes and things like that. But the, the arm strength is never going to be elite, but he's gotten it to the point where with his timing and his accuracy, he's able to hit those pro-style throws just because it's so precise and it's right where it needs to be. And it helps that UTSA has three great receivers in Zachary Franklin and Joshua Cephas and DeCorian Clark, who have all proven that if you kind of throw the ball up to them, they can go up and make a play. So he has a lot of different weapons to work with. And that's combined with his own personal improvement, just with how well he's throwing the ball this year has, has raised the level of just the entire offense to be, like you said, very balanced and very, very potent. How's the defense play? Because you look at some of the scores of these games and just at first blush, it looks like UTSA has been involved in a lot of close games that have been high scoring. They've won a lot of one possession or, you know, seven, eight, nine point games this year. How has the defense performed with the offense, you know, scoring 35, 40 points a game on average? Yeah, it was very interesting because early in the year, it felt like nobody could run the ball against UTSA and they were not going to allow anybody to have any success on the ground. And as the year went on, the first kind of sign of struggle trouble trouble was against uh, Southern Miss where they came out with this like wildcat offense and were able to get a few things going and didn't end up with a huge offensive output, but still created some issues on the ground. And then the next week against UAB, they were able to establish the run game a little bit, but UTSA did enough to win that game. And then North Texas ran for, I think it was 370 yards against Mm. them. It was unlike anything we'd ever seen. So it, it remains to be seen if that was just kind of a blip on the radar or if the run game is going to be an issue because on the other side, the past defense, there's been some questions about that really through the year. 
you know, and facing Western Kentucky twice, the nation's leading yeah. passing offense does not does not help that. But Western Kentucky put up 670 yards on them in the first meeting, and UTSA won that game. Um, but that's the most they've ever allowed. And then Bailey Zappi, the quarterback at Western Kentucky, threw for over 500 in the conference championship game too. And we've seen all year where if you look at the stats for most 20 plus passing plays allowed or most 30 plus passing plays allowed, UTSA has been among the worst in the nation at that. So it feels like the defense is playing decently well in a lot of these games. But then you look at the underlying numbers or week to week, there's kind of different issues that are popping up that it kind of just, it just depends how they're, what kind of form they're in that day or what kind of challenges they're presenting, you know, whether they're going to be able to hold up. You mentioned the move from Conference USA to the AAC. Um, of course, the AAC is losing Cincinnati, a playoff participant this year, UCF, a team that's had a couple of undefeated seasons. Houston uh, is making their way, obviously, for the Big 12 as well. So how does, how does UTSA envision this leap and what type of advancement is it in the FBS ranks uh, from Conference USA to the AAC, in your opinion? Yeah, I think, first of all, whether they kind of felt it was a good fit or not, they would have had to make some kind of a move just because Conference USA was in such a state of True. turmoil at that point that to be able to find a, a healthier landing spot was a no-brainer if the opportunity presented itself. And I think the biggest benefit, very tangible and very obvious, is the media rights component where they were getting maybe half a million from, from Conference USA annually, and the AAC has been paying out like $6 million a year in terms of media rights. So that's a huge jump, and that'll change because the AAC is losing some of their most attractive teams and bringing in some, some teams that were you know Conference USA schools. So however that gets renegotiated, it should still be a huge boost to the program. In terms of the on-field component, it'll be interesting because these teams that they're playing against the existing AAC members who are staying in the league still have much larger budgets than a lot of the conference USA schools. So like we talked about with trailers contract, it's sort of a obvious thing that they have to do to make a greater commitment and get to that level if they want to compete on a week to week basis. So certainly it's something exciting that they think they can recruit to, and they're very happy to have made the move, but there are going to be challenges that come with it as well. Cause I think they're still they're They're talking about being able to get the athletics budget to 40 million within a few years, but some of these schools in that league are pushing 60. So it's just going to be kind of an uphill battle to continue to expand or to compete with a little bit less. What's the long-term vision for UTSA? a decade from now, even longer. I mean, do they want to see themselves eventually in a power five league? Is that realistic with UTSA? I mean, will they have their own facility at some point? What does this program look like 10 years from now? That's a really good question. I, I would have thought that even with the AAC consideration that they were not going to be ready for that because, you know, playing football in the Elmo Dome is great in a lot of ways. It's, you know, compared to a lot of these stadiums we go to in Conference USA on a week to week basis, I much prefer as the media guy, the experience of being yeah. in the Elmo Dome. But, you know, there's always going to be that desire for there to be an on-campus stadium. And that's not really even something that I think is in initial planning yet because they have a ton of other needs in facilities. They, they just this year opened up a new football practice kind of facility headquarters for the program where a lot of the athletics administrators are in there, all the coaches are in there. But before that, they were in kind of a PE building and the, the administrators were in an off-campus business park and the whole thing was not, you know, it's not, not a power five setup there. So they've gotten that part worked out with the practice facility, but the baseball stadium still needs a lot of work there. I think the next thing on the docket is a basketball, volleyball practice facility, they play in potentially the worst basketball arena in Division One. It's got to be up there. It's just mm. the on-campus convocation center, and there's no kind of spectator experience or even like things like parking, and it's just not. So the point being, if they want to be at a Power 5 level, they have to make baby steps to do all of those things. And 
that's a big ask because obviously we're talking about how they have to step up the budget just to compete in the AAC on a year to year basis. So then where do you find this other money for these huge projects that you need to rip off? So I think that they would love to continue to expand the program to that point. And clearly being in a city of this size, there is this potential fan base to engage. And as the alumni base grows year after year, it's a, the school has a pretty large enrollment at this point. So you're, you're continually cranking out people who are going to be invested in the program and who potentially become donors someday with the, with the degree that they get there. So I don't know that that's something that's in the immediate future. I think the AAC is a great fit for them for a long time, but you know, that's probably their dream the same way it is for many others around the country, but at least you can see where they have a path to get there. There's just a lot of work to do between now and then. Lastly, Greg, what would this, um, mean for UTSA to get a win in this game over San Diego State, cap off a 13-1 and season as a conference champion. Is this a significant game to finish off this year, or have they already accomplished their goals with the conference title in the 12-win season? Yeah, I think it's actually very significant for them because one thing that I think people might not be aware of when you see the success they've had this year is that this program has never won a bowl game. They're, they've only gone twice before, and they lost uh, – they lost the first responder bowl last year and they lost the New Mexico bowl, I think in 2016, but other than that, they've never gone before. So hmm. whereas, whereas a lot of times these, these bowl games end up being just kind of a cherry on top for a lot of teams. This is another first and another milestone that they can chase after that they've never hit before in a year of, of doing quite a bit of that. I mean, they had never won more than eight games in a season. They'd never even qualified for a conference championship game. And so to do all of those things and win the conference championship and cap it off with a with a bowl win. And I don't even know, you know, it's worth looking back at some point, how many 13 win teams are there ever, you know, like it's not, that's not an easy milestone to get to either. So I think they have a lot of different motivations and a lot of things to be prepared for. I know that they're kind of taking it light this week while the coaching staff is on the road recruiting and they're kind of getting rested up. But I imagine once they get back into the swing of full practice, that intensity and that desire to win this game will be as high as it's been for any other this year. I said last question, but as Jeff Trailer commented on the matchup and, and facing San Diego State, obviously there's not a keen familiarity, although I think Brady Hoke had said he's seen a lot of US, UTSA because based on opponents, you know, UNLV, maybe there's been a one or two others. San Diego State has kind of followed UTSA on film a little bit this season. Has Jeff Trailer made any public comments on this matchup? Yeah, we talked to them right after the selection, and at that point he was not very familiar with it, but he did mention that the defense is pretty potent and something they have to be prepared for. But he was, I mean, it got announced Sunday like everybody else, and then he was on the road recruiting Monday morning. So we have not been able to circle back with him since then. So I think, you know, they're doing a lot of that film study while they're in the air from place to place, and they're getting little uh, snippets to the players to get some kind of a groundwork set in. But in terms of like a full scouting report and a game plan that they've put together, I think a lot of that is still in the work. So I haven't gotten a good feedback from him yet. Well, it should be a good one. Again, a, a really good group of five matchup between UTSA and San Diego State, which will be Tuesday, December 21st in the Frisco Bowl. Greg, we appreciate your perspective on UTSA. Really enjoyed it today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on. I'm really looking forward to the game. Should be one of the best of the entire bowl season. And again, if you haven't already, please subscribe and auto-download future episodes on whichever podcast platform you're listening to this podcast on right now. You can leave reviews. And once again, switch over to Twitter and follow me there, at John Schaefer. That's J-O-N-S-C-H-A-E-F-F-E-R. For previous episodes or more information about Left Coast Sports, you can visit yourview.com. That's Y-U-R-V-I-E-W.com. And again, a reminder, as part of their commitment to the community, Prospect Home Finance is making possible some local sports coverage on your view, starting off with girls' high school basketball December 16th when Mission Hills takes on La Jolla Country Day. Prospect Home Finance, fast, friendly, affordable. As always, we thank you for listening, and we'll catch up again next time right here on Left Coast Sports with John Schaefer.